foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're going to leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. It's the Move Your DNA podcast with Katie Bowman. I am Katie Bowman, biomechanist and author of Move Your DNA and a bunch of other books about movement. This show is about how movement works on the cellular level, how to change your position as you move, and why you might want to, and how movement works in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome. Are you ready to get moving? Today's episode with Donaga Markegaard, wildlife tracker, and someone that embodies so much of natural movement. I want to dive into this discussion, but before I do, a listener question. KB, I've read you recommend squats for pelvic floor issues, but I have an organ prolapse and was told to avoid them. I'm confused. Can you help? I can, my friend, I can. You can find more on what I'm about to say in the pelvis chapter of Move Your DNA, but this is the short version. Squats are a category of many different movements. Like a deep squat to bathroom, for example, is different from a deep squat with 50 or 100 pounds on your back, is different from the squat we use to get down to and up out of chairs, is different than a sustained toilet hover. Each of these has the English language squat attached to them, but... That we do that, that we name things the same, does not mean that they're the same physically, only that they look similar to us in some way. My point with squats is how they relate to natural movement, movement nutrition, and movement ecology. The average parts of the human body are able to facilitate a deep squat, and in a toilet-free context, this would be well-practiced every day of our lives. So squatting is a natural movement. Technology, toilets and chairs, have been created and mass-produced, so sitting, resting, or bathrooming no longer requires squatting. However, the parts of our body still need to be moved in this way or a similar way to keep the physiology working well. So many prolapses then could be viewed as a sign of movement malnutrition or what happens when you pair 
organs that have a constant weight and a frequent acceleration, which is the fact that like when you move, the things inside of you are moving slightly differently than the house that surrounds them. You're pairing that with a mostly sedentary body whose strength to support comes about with movement. If squatting then is the missing nutrient, then adding squatting can take care of this issue, right? That makes sense. You have a vitamin C deficiency, you take vitamin C. However, squatting isn't the only missing movement nutrient here. And what's different than dietary nutrition is that you've got a full-grown body now trying to learn how to squat with all of your adaptations that can exacerbate the issue. And actually, I'm not sure that it's actually that different now that I think about it, that different than dietary nutrition, because I know that if you've gone calorie-free for a long period of time, or maybe even protein-free for a long period of time, that to add in maybe your daily recommendations that could make you ill. And I believe I saw this saw this maybe in a documentary where they were talking about it was, you know, a starving population and wanting to introduce food. And it was like, you have to really be careful. So this idea that there is a need eventually out here, but that you are a living system that has adapted to what you have been doing and that sometimes there's steps in between that have to be addressed. So It would be more accurate to say that I recommend transitioning your body to be able to handle a squat. And this requires many things, not just squats. And I often say to not do squats at all. It would be even more accurate to say that I recommend transitioning to many other movements besides the squat as well. I'd love to help everyone get to where they can squat or at least use their body to get down and up without creating a tremendous amount of downward pressure which is why squats are often contraindicated. A squat to fix a situation in which you're potentially bearing down will only add to the mix. So you want to work on your pressures first. The book recommendations for that in order would be diastasis recti, dynamic aging, and move your DNA. The Healthy Pelvis DVD has those transitional exercises and will get you to the point of being able to do a squat to and from the chair without any downward pressure as monitored by you. Here is a pro tip. One of the reasons I recommend minimal footwear is because ankle and foot mobility can affect the mobility of your knees and hips, which is also the mobility of your pelvis and your spine. For many, it is the ankles that don't dorsiflex much. Dorsiflexion is a foot that's angled uphill. This limitation then changes the shape or the geometry of the gait pattern, which is the way that you walk, and also the shape of your squat. This geometry in turn affects which muscles are recruited when you walk or squat. So for everyone out there working on their feet, knees, hip, spine, shoulders, and pelvis, that's right, I said pelvis, and squat, check into minimal footwear and transitioning into it properly. This health tip, this alignment tip, Brought to you today by Earthrunners Minimal Sandals. I am on my third pair. One of my straps just broke in New Zealand. I posted a picture on Instagram breaking down the cost per mile of these shoes. I will link that in the show notes. And I was happy to have in the mail when I got back from New Zealand a pair of replacement straps. I don't even need new shoes, just new straps. So thank you, Earthrunner. And everyone else in the Dynamic Collective. These are a group of businesses that are sponsoring This podcast, especially these two questions where you get to ask me whatever 
is burning a hole down deep inside and help you on the road to more movement. So the collective is unshoes, minimal sandals, Venn design, maker of beautiful dynamic living space decor, my Mayu outdoor boots for kids and soft star shoes made by elves. In addition to earth runner for more information on these companies, go to the show notes, click, listen, click podcast transcripts. They're all linked on the top of each episode's notes. Let's get to it. Donaga Markegaard is my guest today. Donaga has a background in wildlife tracking, holistic management, and permaculture, along with her husband, Eric, and four children. Donaga lives on a coastal ranch in San Gregorio, California. Donaga is passionate about finding ways to regenerate lands and community through practices that build soil, sequester carbon, capture and purify water, and enhance the habitat. Donaga has an immense passion for the natural world and helping others live a life of balance with the earth and all living things, leading a life of example where her own actions are deliberated into the health of the future generations. Donaga is the author of Dawn Again, Tracking the Wisdom of the Wild. Donaga Markegaard, hello, welcome to Move Your DNA. Hi, Katie. It's great to be on. So full disclosure, I, or I guess this is, Full disclosure sounds so negative. Full <laughs> the way Donaga. <laughs> oh yeah, we have a secret here. It's right? a secret pass. I gotta disclose this. Um, <laughs> I heard Donaga on a podcast. I believe it was the Modern Farm Girl podcast, which is now Sustainable Dish. Yes, that's right. right. Diana Rogers. Diana yep. Rogers, Sustainable Dish, and actually, it was just her. I think that interviewed you, and you had you were just telling this story of tracking wolves. And, you know, it was kind of like my other life. Like I have a movement life and then I have a interest in like trying to become a better farmer, homesteader. For a long time, those were two two separate facets. It's only in the last three to four years that I've realized how much that they've actually merged. So I was listening to this, you know, farming podcast. And then here is a wildlife tracker who's talking about when, I I mean, you were still a teenager at this point, right? Were you like 19 or 20 when you were running? You know, you had just run 20 miles that you got out. They dropped you off with a water bottle and you run 20 miles into the forest and you're just tracking these alpha wolves. Yeah, I was probably more like 16, 17. Oh my gosh, like even better. (laughs) So I heard her on this podcast and I had a visceral reaction and I I really I really follow my the way that I for as for as much of a thinker as I am I realize that I usually am nudged by my my full reactions emotionally or uh, you know an upwelling from inside and then I quickly with my brain go but I just I sent an email you're hard to find online. You didn't even have social media, I don't even think. And I sent you an email to say, because I have a publishing company, I said, if you have a book inside of you, I would like to publish it. And I think it was that bold. It was a pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> and so here we are. Yeah. Don again has only been out for a little bit. It's doing amazingly well. The reviews are amazing. The coverage is amazing. So I want to talk about I want to talk about the content in Dawn Again, which is you took that story and 
you tied it into it's like a it's a, a wilderness memoir. Like if you were to explain Don again to to my listeners, how how would you do it? Yeah. So uh, thank you, Katie, for following your your intuition and contacting me because I I did have a book inside of me and uh, um so. So to explain Dawn again, uh, really, it's about a, my journey, uh, starting from a young woman of a very deep questioning and curiosity and a drive to get in touch with my senses, my instincts, my sort of calling in life and experience that through none other than nature as a way to connect with, with myself. And so I didn't want to follow any, uh, path of some typically man, because that's who's written a lot of the books. And even uh, when I was going to school, a lot of the heroes were were men. And so I really forged my own path uh, without having a lot of uh, female role models, uh, but connecting directly with, with nature and with the animals. And then that brought me to a larger holistic vision. Uh, and that journey through connecting with nature brought me into the work that I do today, which is regenerative, uh, ranching. So, uh, regenerative is a term that, uh, is just starting to, uh, take root and it's essentially providing, uh, life by, giving more life in return of every life you take. So uh, the form that of regenerative agriculture that we do is uh, large-scale uh, grassland restoration and uh, mimicking nature to uh, provide nutrient-dense foods for thousands of families here in the San Francisco Bay Area where we live. And I think it, yeah, thinking about it, I never really thought about my my journey in the context of movement. But I think without that movement and without connecting to the way my my body works and these uh, natural patterns, uh, my journey really has been about movement. And every time that I find myself um, spending more sedentary hours, I find things starting to deteriorate, <laughs> whether it's mentally, physically. Uh, so I think that because I've been so patterned to be very engaged in my body and uh, engaged in my senses, that being sedentary is is very foreign to me. And Actually, I think the most sedentary I'd ever been in my life was writing Dawn again. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be one of my questions. <laughs> yeah. But then you helped me to try to you know, figure out different ways that I could uh, still work on the computer. But it, it's, it's hard because when you get into a zone, 
with writing. And I think a lot of, I've seen, I've spent a lot of time with very creative visionary type people. And when they get this, this, uh, it's almost like a trance Mm -hmm. and then everything else falls away. And, you know, sometimes I would just be, you know, maybe have a cup of tea or a cup of bone broth sitting by my computer and I have my, my hood on and I would just be, you know, staring close to the computer screen and, you know, for hours, not thinking of, of anything else, because I would just sort of enter into this trance mode. Then after realizing how detrimental that was to my health, I had to force myself to sort of break out of that and then go shift and, and move. Uh, because it, when, when I was learning wilderness survival and wildlife tracking and nature awareness, um, we would start, we would start the day by movement and we would start the day with animal forms. And I think I shared some animal forms with you, Katie, when you came to our, uh, local nature program down here, but that was instrumental to what we did was moving like an animal. I reached out to you, obviously, because I was moved by your story, but it was also, I think, for some of the reasons that you just touched on, you know, I'm constantly working and developing and trying to define the nuances of this thing that we call natural movement. And often natural movement, as far as popular culture goes, falls within, you know, rewilding and 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 the paleo movements, which... I have always found to be extremely there, there's not a, a lot of women necessarily in those movement spheres as, you know, authorities. And so alongside that natural movement tends to when you think of it, when you say those words, you think of like sprinting running long distances, jumping, like very large physical feats, which it definitely does embody. However, there's, you know, a lot of my work is like breastfeeding is a natural movement, chewing, you know, squatting, these things that when I've worked with other people who teach, you know, natural movements, they're like, I just, I can't teach a a movement. I don't know how to teach a movement class where acorn gathering is the star we need to do 30 squats or like if I had everyone squat underneath a tree and hold it for three minutes and set it up as that challenge, like you guys are going to hold for three minutes and squat until you're, you have tears running out of your eyes. But the idea of doing, I when we came up and visited you, we spent a day at Donaga's school and it was acorn gathering day. And so I have this video of my daughter with her gathering bag in a squat. I mean, she was in a squat for like six minutes, but she was walking in a squat to to pick up the acorns, like to come up and come down and come up and come down. Her body wasn't signaling her to do that because it wasn't a struggle for her to be down there. And so trying to help some of these movement teachers like recognize that that there are other purposes to the movements than just the movements themselves. But And I was explaining to someone else that I was really trying to bring this other voice to this wilderness movement, this wild food, natural movement, like just to help balance out the energies that were talking about it. And I read on Instagram, I don't know if you saw this, but someone 
wrote this about your book. And I'm going to read it to you and then we can talk about it. This is from Primal Doc at Primal Doc on Instagram. One of the lessons that became clear to me from my experience in New Mexico is that I have a desire to go deeper into embodying my wild nature. Natural movement is just one of the paths there. As I devour the wisdom of Donaga's experience, I realize that there are so many other trails to follow to that destination as well. That natural movement will simply happen when you take the time to truly become the deer or the wolf, to dance like the weasel or the bear. In light of my failure to pass the advanced movement course, she's talking about like she was trying to certify in this next level, I think, of MoveNet. And the subsequent negative self-talk I've subjected myself to reading her words has been like a gentle, warm embrace, urging me to take the long view and see the bigger picture. Though I do want to test myself and expand my limits physically and mentally, I don't feel like I need to do some crazy, scary rail balancing combo to do that or cheese grater my hands and arms climbing up a stucco wall. I feel more called by the ability to move silently, to stay aware, and to be one with my surroundings, moving in them and not just through them. When I read that, I was like, this is exactly why this book. It is the balance of all of those natural movements that that you've been tying to the fitness world, but not necessarily to fitness is an interesting term. There's physical fitness, which is like all those tests in your capacity and your muscle mass. Then there's biological fitness, how well you would do your offspring would do in an environment. So to me. Donegan and the things that you do, Donaga, the things that you learned at Wilderness Awareness School that you are putting out there in your nature school and that you're writing and speaking about is this balance to fitness. It's like the full picture of fitness being being well enough, uh, capable enough physically to walk silently is huge to be able to sit still for a long period of time and observe And it also makes natural movement that much more accessible to those who are feeling like the physical feats that they associate with natural movement aren't available to them. The fact that you could still train yourself to sit comfortably outside in the weather and observe. And to me, that is so exciting. So one, thank you for writing the book. And now I have to get to some questions because we could just talk forever. Yeah. (laughs) Because most of us won't be tracking wolves, oh, who knows, but most of us won't, (laughs) do you think that anyone can track some wildlife even if they live in a city? Yes, absolutely. I mean, once you're a tracker, uh, I think Tom Brown uh, told me this, that you're always always tracking. So uh, once you learn uh, the basics of what types of animals live in your area, what types of habitat they live in, what they like to eat, who their predators are. And then you you open up this whole new world of awareness and adventure, really. And uh, one of my peers uh, in the Wilderness Awareness School that I, uh, I talk about, um, her, her name is Ricky, and she she certainly moved more like a wild animal than she did a, a human. And she uh, she grew up and lived in Seattle. 
And uh, she would have just incredible adventures right out of her um, her front door. And she would have uh, all these different trees that she would climb. And uh, so her, her sit spot, because she found that was sort of the safest uh, place for her to be with the, you know, the homeless populations was to be high up in a tree. And she had amazing tracking stories. I remember her telling us about how she had mapped out where all of the squirrels made their caches. And she essentially made this map of the city of where the squirrels would um, cache the hazelnuts. And then she would go back later and mark if they had come back for the cache or if they had, if they didn't, or if it was stolen by a J or someone else. So, you know, she essentially had a whole map of the city, not like we're used to seeing a map on, on Google maps, but of the wildlife trails and the, and the birds and uh, the things that, that go undetected. So she really did have sort of this, this secret uh, view of, of the city. Now, I'll have to say I've never lived in a city. I've never had a desire to. And I live on, you know, on our house is, sits right in the middle of a thousand acre grasslands. Uh, so my kids, uh, they can they can walk out the front door and, and they could potentially find mountain lion tracks down in the drainage. Um, however, there are amazing things to, to discover really anywhere you're at. So, well, there's wildlife everywhere. I mean, even I think we don't think of birds as wildlife, right? Like, I think that so many people find an Autobahn Center, right? I think almost every yeah. city will still have an Autobahn Center. And we live fairly rurally as well, but we also travel quite a bit. And when I do travel, I'm going to very large cities. And it's very interesting to see my kids who go to nature school, outdoor school. They are so trained to engage with the the green spaces, the limited green spaces that they can find, you know, even if you're in New York City, <clears throat> they're pointing out the bugs that they see, what the birds are doing, these plants over here, like they, they're just tuned to seeing it. So I think that tracking and, and becoming more in tune to nature is simply just a shift in perception that, that, that there's always wilderness going on around you, nature really going on around you. You just have to train yourself how to see it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's just a shame that that's not taught in, you know, from the, from the very start in preschool and kindergarten uh, to recognize these species and that nature really is all around us and that we depend on nature and nature depends on us. And we really are a part of nature because if, you know, if kids were taught that from a young age, cities would look very differently. Mm -hmm. They would be designed differently. Yeah. And, you know, there's a whole other slew of mental things that I'm sure would be different in terms of uh, people's own, own uh, mental health if they have access to, to nature from, from a young age. I mean, that's, that's, been, that's been proven that uh, when kids have access to nature, then they develop more empathy and they're more likely to be environmental stewards as as they get older. Do you think it's changing? Because I I mean I'm seeing as like children in nature network do bigger things that there's just more and more research about just 
minute daily nature exposures as being very beneficial to our physiology and physical experiences, my hope is that that people start designing urban areas to add green spaces, make them more walkable. I've seen some of those changes. Have you seen any at all in your travels? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, we are fortunate enough that we live in areas and oftentimes travel to areas that there are folks that are really consciously making those changes. However, I would say that the bulk of the country is still, you know, probably 20, 30 years behind that. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a a pull to looking at the accessibility of nature. Yeah. For everyone. Okay. If you were to explain the motions that go into tracking a wolf from like a geometrical or like if I were watching you and, and I could strip away like a photograph, the forest so that all I could see was you on a green screen and I was assessing your movement as we would do like in a biomechanics lab. What, what are the movements that go into tracking a mountain lion, like a carnivore, like a mountain lion or a wolf? Yeah. So I think the first thing when, even before I come upon a trail, what I will do is I'll just do a, a centering So that may look like uh, me standing or even sitting. I'll start out with my eyes closed and uh, just a relaxed knees bent posture and breathe deep and connect with the earth and connect with my senses so that I don't have the jibber-jabber in my mind sort of distracting me from the present moment and and really the task that 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 I have um, ahead of me so uh, that's that's how I'll start even before I, I hit the trail and then uh, once I find a trail if I'm fortunate enough to find a fresh trail of a mountain lion or a wolf if uh, I'm actively tracking them then what I'll do is I'll, uh, I, I do a lot of squatting down sort of with one hand palm facing down uh, in, in a squat with my hand over the, the track. So, uh, and, you know, I'm not necessarily a feeling for anything, but I'm getting the sense of, okay, my hands over the track and how, what size is the track compared to my hand, because as I'm trailing, which is the ultimate form of tracking, in my opinion, when I've tracked with indigenous hunter-gatherer people from Africa, they, they're they not used to the sort of Western an- analytical view of tracking. What they're really looking for is the animal. Right. <laughs> and they're, they find a fresh track, they're, they're off in a run to find that animal. So they track for survival. And so that's very different than what you see out here in in our cultures is that oftentimes somebody will see one track and oh everybody'll circle around it and you know backs facing out and mm. analyze the uh, pressure releases and uh, size and get their measuring tapes out and so, so like so like just to interrupt you it's like would it, would you say that the difference is one group is tracking knowledge and the other group is tracking food or some necessity yeah yeah that could that could be a good comparison because it is different when you track for for food right right there's an urgency there and that's not to say that one's 
you know, better sure. or worse. I mean, I love geeking out on on tracks and yeah. getting down into all the micro micro things about a track and and what's around it and how fast it's going and and all of those things. But um, when I've tracked with indigenous people, like they're they're uptaking that information very rapidly, just enough so that they can see the next track and and get a sense of the trail so that they can follow it. Just to pause there for a second for our listeners. That is a very good difference, too, between kind of geeking out on the technicality of movement done for the sake of gathering knowledge about movement versus what you learn about movement once you get moving quickly, that, that you, are, you are still gathering information. It's just the types of the information, the way you're perceiving the information that you're gathering, and the end, the end reason that you're doing that movement are different. Okay, I will not interrupt you again. That was just such a, such a beautiful example of a non-movement example. Um, okay, so we're, we're back on the trail. Yeah, so uh, I, I'd be squatted down, maybe one knee one knee higher than, than the other so that I can move one side of my body. So say my right hand is uh, hovering over the track. My, my left hand is sort of out to the side or maybe on the ground so that I can... Uh, get down to the height of the animal. So I have an idea if I'm tracking, you know, say a wolf, where their eyes land mm-hmm. on the, the horizon. So I'm I'm looking down the trail as as they would look down the trail so that I can get an idea of of where they're going, where where they're looking and and then also look for the next track. <laughs> and then uh, I'll get a sense by the, the information that I'm gathering from that track and from that trail, I'm seeing okay, what sort of uh, movement pattern is that animal in? So I might actually rock my body, back and forth if it's in just its baseline uh, trot. And we use the term baseline to say, okay, that, you know, say probably 90% of the time that animal is in that baseline trot. You know, usually when you see a coyote cruising across the hillside, they're, they're in a trot. And uh, it's, it's only when they have to get into a lope that they do, or when they're uh, pouncing or, you know, moving slower. It's only when they're maybe close to their den side or something like that. So, so I get the idea. I sort of get the cadence, the, the rhythm of it and maybe rock my head back and forth or, and then I start to move down the trail. But before I move down the trail, what I'll do is I'll look around me. So, um, I'll maintain that centered, um, sense meditation and I'll look to the left. And then I'll pause because if you're always moving your head, you can't see movement. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Um, so if you just look to the left and then look to the right and then look behind you and um, you're, you're not really going to see anything. So you have to look to the left and then pause and go into wide angle vision and see if there's any movement off to your left because Oftentimes, animals will circle around, and I've uh, had this when tracking uh, mountain lions. They will actually circle around and then be trailing me, and I'll <laughs> go back. I won't realize it until later. I'll see their tracks actually landing on top of my tracks. Mm. So when 
when you're tracking a predator, you need to be paying attention or even when you're in predator country. So you look to the left and you pause and you look for any movement. You tune into the bird language and then you look to the right and you pause behind you and pause and then look above you and and pause because animals can also pounce from from above in the case of a, a mountain lion. So it's only when I get a sense of my surroundings that I continue down the trail. And um, I'll go at different paces. I might walk slow, doing a really slow, kind of uh, quiet, uh, what we call fox walk, um, or I'll, I'll, I'll jog down the trail. So it, it just really depends on the 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 terrain how difficult the trail is is if, if it's a really difficult trail to follow I, i'll go slow so that i don't miss anything and i'll stop often and i'll go back down to a squat and i'll put my hand over the trail and um the other thing is when i'm walking or when i'm jogging um my head's not bouncing up and down. You know, when you see somebody jogging, like maybe with their iPod in and uh, they're cruising down a trail, you see a lot of like up and down movement and they're swinging their arms. And it's like, they're trying to get the most out of every, uh, every step, but then they're kind of landing with a lot of um, uh, percussion. And, and so when I move, I'm, trying to keep my eyes level and even when I'm jogging. So it's, it, it doesn't, it kind of looks strange, but uh, you can imagine, say, if you were to have a rope attached to your uh, belly button and it's more like you're being pulled to move forward. You're not thrusting yourself forward, but you're, you're getting pulled from your, from your core, from your center and you're not bouncing up and down and you're landing really softly. I like the idea. So again, what I think you're introducing or how I'm perceiving it is this idea of form. You know, so many people run for fitness and the idea that, you know, that humans are runners naturally. But the idea that the way that you would running, because it serves a purpose outside of running, affects how you do it. Like you're not trying to get your run over, right? You're not thrusting your chest out and trying to race necessarily. There's a, there's a you know, in a lot of different running techniques, I think there's a form to quote good running. But I do think it's interesting to relate it back to this idea that if your running serves another purpose, then to be able to hold your body how do you say still while moving, you know, like that you can that you can mm-hmm. still perceive the world. It is like if, if anyone wants to try this, if you go out and if you're trying to detect movement, you have to kind of hold stillness in order to have the movement signal you. Right. That's what seeing movement is, is that you catch it because it's different than the stillness. So. We can't necessarily, I mean, there is some amount of tracking that's done in stillness and observing nature, but once you're observing it, when you need to observe it for your safety and your sustenance, you still need to be able to stabilize or keep stillness while, while you are moving through it. So it's like a whole other reason for form or good form, that it's not just good, like good, you know, like some nebulous concept but that it's purposeful in that now you can move while still meeting these other safety or health objectives. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then just being easy on easier on your body, I think. Well, right. To be able to do it longer, <laughs> to be able to do it longer, right? Yeah. Yeah. To be able to sustain long distances. I, yeah. I just, my, my daughter Quince, who you've met, uh, she likes to talk to herself in the shower when she thinks nobody is listening. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> just yesterday when she was in the shower, I, I uh, kind of quietly went in there and so that she didn't notice I was in there. And she does this horse vaulting. So they're doing all of these gymnastics up on a, a big horse and then jumping off or doing all these tricks and, and landing. So a lot of the injuries happen during landing. And so she's going over and over in her head, okay, soft landing. Imagine that you're uh, landing on the heads of hundreds of little baby kittens. <laughs> right. Yes. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, that's kind Motivation. of... Motivation. <laughs> <Yeah>. She loves <laughs> so, kittens. Yeah, she does love kittens. So, you know, if, if maybe that's something that we can imagine is imagine that, you know, there's a carpet of little, little cute little baby kittens and we don't right. want to uh, step on their heads. Right. And you are running on stuff. If you're out in nature, like there are living things underneath you. So that's what fox feet are good for. Yeah. Besides being quiet, just not being as destructive for that same bout of movement. Here's a question that I got a while ago. The idea of like when you're talking about make sure you're looking up when you're walking through predator country is someone wrote me and said, I would love to do more nature. How do I get over being afraid? You know, like afraid of predators and snakes and and all of these things out there that can kill me. You know, she's asking, like, how do you how do I train myself to be less afraid? Do you have any tips on that? Yeah, that's, that's a big one. Um, because so much of that fear is stemming from something that may have happened that they may not even be aware of. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, something that maybe happened when they were a child and that has sort of just ingrained into their, their brain and their whole being that they, you know, when they come across a situation, it might be like a fight or flight reaction. So I would say that overcoming fears is some of the some of the greatest work that we can do for self growth. And I I talk about a lot of stories in my book that, you know, many people, you know, would would probably say, gosh, I, you know, I would never, I would never do that. I would never sleep alone in grizzly country. And, (laughs) and yeah, some of it may have been that I was just this fearless teenager that, you know, thinking that nothing, nothing could harm me. And, uh, yet, uh, I had other, you know, I, I had other things that I, I was, I was sort of up against. So I think everybody has different sort of mental barriers that, uh, we can all take steps to, to overcome and, and just start, start small. One of the things that, uh, we, that I, I've, I've always done because I was, I was the youngest of, uh, three girls and, um, my sisters would go off a lot with, with their friends and I was, I was stuck alone and my mom worked a lot. So I got really used to being alone. And oftentimes I didn't have anyone to, uh, ride my horse with. So I would jump on my horse and I would go far out into the wilderness and I would be alone. I would go down to the river, 
um, alone and sit by the river. Um, so I think the first step is just being comfortable being alone. Um, and for longer periods of time, and that may be that you go out into nature with someone, but then you take two different routes. We do that a lot with, with our kids, even when, when they were young, it's like, okay, you take that trail, I'll take this trail. And if we're concerned, like they're going to stumble across something or, um, their safety, we might take a trail where we can still, look at them and look at their surroundings, but they still have the sense that Mm -hmm. they're alone. Yeah. So I would say that would be the first step. Spend more time alone in situations where, um, your, your edges are pushed, uh, and then try to go and spend a night alone out, out in nature. And, and I think, I think with that, you'll start to be comfortable with with the things that may come up that are perceived fears and then be able to tell yourself, okay, that, that really wasn't, wasn't real. That was just something that I was making up Mm -hmm. in, in my head, because really it's, you're more likely to get struck by lightning than you are to get attacked by a mountain lion. And, um, so we don't, we we don't walk around in the rain thinking that we're going to get struck by lightning all the time. Right. Right. So I think that, uh, I think that's, that's really the first step. And also, I guess for so many people, they're not really fluent in nature. And so the more I, I always have found, to get over certain fears is to surround myself with people who don't have that fear, who I'm on my edge simply by being with them while they're comfortable. And so I can, my brain, you know, my thinking analytical part is, okay, there's 12 people here. I'm the only one afraid. And so I can kind of shift my perception a little bit to be like, okay, well, maybe, maybe either I know something that none of them know, or, or maybe there's not as much, of what I had to worry about. And then, you know, like if it's snakes or whatever that you get in and then you expose yourself to them in ways where it may be more controlled. And I have just, I have just found that simply by going out and doing it on some scale, just like pursuing fitness or exercise, you find a small amount to push you towards your edge a little bit so that you can grow through whatever is holding you back from where, from where you want to go. Yeah. Okay, so your kids attend a nature school as well. You also teach there. We have just started on this podcast being supported by this thing called the Dynamic Collective. So it's a few minimal shoe companies, Soft Star Shoes, My Mayu Boots, Unshoes Sandals, Earthrunner Sandals, and Venn Design that make kind of minimal furniture. They are regularly sponsoring a mailbag, which is a question that people send in for me. But for today, I actually wanted to get your take on this question. So the question is from Danae, who writes, one thing I would love to hear more about is helping kids follow this path, nature path, wilderness school path. What kind of toys, you have older kids than I do, what kind of toys do you limit or keep around with older children? We try to keep it minimal, but we also believe in play-based learning. And we're trying to make nature central to our learning this year. So with your kids getting older, how do you plan to transition, if at all? I love the forest school philosophies and try to make it work with our homeschool. What are your plans for moving forward? Have you found resources that really dig deep into nature study? So what's your Mm -hmm. answer on that? Yeah, 
products. Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the, yeah, something that I think I, you know, I, I'm probably a little different than most, most parents and that we, we really tried to limit products. Um, and sometimes it's difficult because you get gifts from sure. relatives and, uh, but you know, and sometimes I even feel bad, like when they have, when they have, when the kids have birthdays, you know, we, we write on the, the card, please no plastic toys. I mean, right. I, you, you can get them a toy, but please, I, I don't want it right. to be plastic. <laughs> so what, what's the age of your kids too, just so everyone knows the context. Um, we have a uh, seven, nine, 10 and 15. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of what, uh, you could have sort of surrounding them, which you could call toys or tools or resources. Um, I, uh, from, from a young age, uh, my kids, uh, really were surrounded by things that they may find outside. So, uh, wooden blocks that they could stack and uh, build things out of were something that that we always had on hand. And uh, some of the most uh, played with with toys were very simple things like like sticks or um, cardboard boxes. Oh, man, they had so much fun with cardboard and they still do. I mean, you know, my, my 10 year old, when I when I come home with uh, groceries, I'll put them in the, you know, the recycled wine boxes that they have at the store. And, you know, I, I have them in there and they still curl up and inside the cardboard boxes and cut holes and make shelters and, uh, st- you know, stack them up and knock them down. And um, so I think, you know, really simple things like that. And then, uh, limit the amount of things that, uh, have batteries. I, I, we, my kids never had, uh, battery operated toys. You know, we are on a cattle ranch, so horses are definitely a part of it. So they always had, uh, things where they could, uh, pretend like, pretend like they're riding a horse and, um, pretend like they're, they're out, out on the ranch because it's not always practical. Like when you're cooking, when you're cooking dinner and you have a toddler, you can't just send them outside, right? They're, they're in the house with you doing stuff. Um, and then in terms of just bringing in more, uh, wilderness, education into your homeschool and into the lives of your kids. Um, what, what we have is, uh, I find that if I try to, you know, because it, because it's, it's my passion, right? My passion, passion is nature and curiosity. But if I try to push that on my kids, then they, they lose interest. So if I just try to say like, okay, now we're going to sit down and we're going to journal five plants. It's like, oh yeah, right, mom. Like, <laughs> um, so instead what, what I do is I set up our environment. So the first thing when they come in the door, um, they have uh, their, their bookshelf is full of field guides. And even before they could read, they had access to field guides and some of my kids favorite books as little kids to go look through were bird field guides and so they they, they are very well versed with where the chickadee is in the book and where the woodpecker section is um 
so that when they are out in nature and they find something like, oh, I saw, you know, I'll, I'll hear my son say, I saw this really, really cool bird that I've never seen before. And I'll say, oh, I don't know what it was. Go, go check in the guide. And then sure enough, he'll flip through the guide and he'll forget about that bird <laughs> that he was so interested in looking up, but he'll look at, uh, you know, 50 other birds that he'll say, oh yeah, I remember seeing that, oh, you know, so um, I think that having those, instead of me saying, oh yeah, that's a ruby crowned kinglet, or um, that's a California toey, and then his curiosity's over. Oh, okay, I have a name to it, I'm gonna move on to the next thing. I have those guides there for him, so he can then research and, and look it up himself. And then, you know, other things are just, uh, you know, I, I look at what what I've done is more facilitating experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of why when the, I, I married a cattle rancher, yet um, I wanted to engage my kids from a very young age in ranch work. And so uh, we decided to expand to animals that were a little bit more accessible to kids. <laughs> and so that I could be outside with my kids at the same time working. Um, and that was that's really important for our family because I, I have always needed to work full time to su- support our family. And... Um, so I wanted to have a line of work that I could work with my kids and that it could be outdoors. And so that's when we started, uh, you know, raising a lot of chickens and doing uh, more with the the sheep and, and, and pigs, things that are a little bit more accessible for for little ones. So I, I did that. I mean, I would I would go out and even, you know, when my kids, even before they could walk, I would set up a little blanket and then I would go and, and work on some fencing. Um, and then when they got a little bit older, they would help me uh, collect the eggs and, and do the other things. But a lot of times it was more like I was working outside and they were off running around and, and do doing their own thing. Because oftentimes when you try to get kids to work, they'll want to do the opposite. It's more like you kind of have to, uh, model, model it. And then every once in a while they'll come in and they'll help you a little bit and then they'll run off and do their own thing. Yeah. I have seen the idea of play-based learning, play, the need for play over and over again, And I think what might be happening is the idea that because we associate play with toys, that therefore toys are the facilitator of play. Even though you find play in modern hunter-gatherer populations that don't have toys, that play is more a state of mind. It's a set of requirements placed upon someone else. Like the idea that what you're doing has to be productive, has to be done in a certain way, To me, that's what makes something not playful. So if you're looking to facilitate play-based learning, you can do that entirely in nature with things that, or or inside the house using pine cones and things that you gather and and plants. And so that you can facilitate play-based learning without toys. We have a similar 
thing here. Toys are just not, they're not a big part of our household because I think that any anything that you can get from a particular toy, you can get from a natural counterpart and then not only get the skill that that toy would facilitate, also becoming more competent, familiar with things from nature, as well as not requiring the production or the purchase of something that's a non-essential. I think there's also this idea that we teach rather than we model. And so if you're looking mm-hmm. to create play-based learning in nature, that oftentimes is going to require that you are prioritizing nature education for yourself, nature play for yourself. And when you go out and do it, then I have a hard time, you know, keeping my children from whatever I am doing. The, the number one way to keep them away from me and what I'm doing is to invite them to come do it and tell them it's something that they should do. You know yeah. what I mean? So, <laughs> yeah. and so like I have, I've just found that that's the equation. I'm like, oh, if I, if I say, come outside with me and let's build this structure or let's dig this thing because, you know, we, you know, or I need to do this work or whatever. It's like, eh, I don't want to. I want to just sit inside here and read these books or these flashcards or whatever. Then I'll say, I'm going to go outside. I'll see you guys later. And like five minutes later, they're right there. What are you doing? Can we help? And so maybe play-based toys can be shovels and sticks for digging and making, you know, identifying or cutting different plants, you know. So there are tools, but a tool the label of a tool becomes when you need to use it for a job. A tool becomes a toy when you get to do whatever you want with it. You know, so I think that those ideas of play and toy and tool, it's all those labels might be keeping you from getting the thing that you want, uh, Danae, which is more learning and more nature, right? So um, those are those would be my suggestions. Buckets go a long way. Mm-hmm. A whole set of kid-sized you know, digging sticks or, you know, hammer or mallet. These are things that I have found many kids, not just mine, but kids within our greater community are often really keen to play with. Okay, I need to let you go here shortly. But before I do, you are appearing at ShiftCon in LA on February 4th. What are you presenting there? What is ShiftCon? Yeah, well, uh, it's my first time at the conference. And uh From the looks of it, it's a conference that really works in the sphere of leadership in the media and how we can all uh, sort of recharge as we go out and do great things in in the world. So um, I'm actually was invited as a part of uh, a certified uh, grass fed cattle rancher um, with the American Grass-Fed Association. And so there's a big focus this year at ShiftCon on how we can uh, look towards nature's built-in carbon sink, (laughs) which is our, our soils. So we can look towards the basic principles of biology, of photosynthesis and, uh, the, uh, root structures and the rhizosphere of billions of organisms that are in the soils that are all working towards pulling carbon out of the atmosphere to store long-term 
in the soils. And that happens with green growing plants um, out uh, all, all the time. So it doesn't happen in cities. It happens in, <laughs> in nature mm-hmm. um, or as, you know, in any, any type of plants. I mean, it can happen in cities if we build rooftop gardens and have, have a lot of green spaces, but overall there's a much larger percentage of this carbon sink, uh, sort of solution to climate change happening on our farms and ranches. And how can we make farms and ranches more regenerative, uh, giving more life, uh, whether above ground or in the soil than the life that we essentially farm or ranch in the form of, of food. So I'll be joined, um, on a panel with the author of the book, kiss the ground, which our family is, is featured in. And, uh, we'll also be on another panel with other, uh, ranchers, uh, that are doing similar work. And I'm just, I'm just excited excited to meet folks and uh, just see how we can all collaborate more because it seems like there's so many different different movements and a lot of times it's you know it's hard to find the time to really um, kind of cross over to a, a different group of people and find the find the commonalities and how we can all in a sense uh, lift each other up right. Yeah. If you go to ShiftCon Media for anyone interested, if you're in the LA area, you can check out getting a ticket or a pass. Dominica, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. I could talk to you again. Maybe we'll do another one too, because there's definitely more that we can talk about. And maybe we can do an all question based one for those wanting to figure out uh, nature solutions. Absolutely. Donaga Markagard is the author of Dawn Again. Tracking the Wisdom of the Wild. You can find it by walking to your local bookstore. And if they don't have it, request it. You can also request it always at your local library. They're really good at getting you the books that you want. You can also find it on online booksellers and Amazon. You can find Donaga online at donagamarkagard.com. On Instagram at at dawn.again and on Twitter at Donaga Writes. We will put more information about Donaga's appearance in the show notes. Have a great day, Donaga. Thank you, Katie. You too. Okay. And speaking of California, I am headed there for two public events in April. On Thursday, April 5th, 1 to 4 p.m., Donaga Markagard and I are leading a two and a half hour hike on gorgeous land in Pescadero, We will be playing with the complexities of human movement and how they fit into the fundamental principles of wildlife tracking and wild food gathering. If you liked Move Your DNA, Movement Matters. If you love movement ecology, if you loved Dawn again, come out and join us. We will be doing a book signing, Q&A, photos, as well as just getting our hands dirty and getting getting our knees down in the dirt. Friday through Sunday, April 6th to April 8th, that's Friday afternoon to Sunday morning, I am leading a dynamic aging retreat at 1440. That is a new retreat center in the Bay Area of California. It's located in Scotts Valley. Dynamic aging, simple exercises for improving strength and confident movement through a texture-rich world. I will be teaching eight hours of class and there are other things to do on this retreat property. You've got your meals, you've got 
your housing, you can make it a parent, child, partner, girls weekend, whatever you want to do, come out. It's a beautiful redwood covered property. We're definitely going to get some barefoot action on as well as learning how to tend to our bodies in a sustainable way because we are all aging. There's a link to both events, both the foraging hike and the retreat in the show notes. And you can also find more information by going to nutritiousmovement.com, click on the calendar and go to live events. Okay, everyone, for more information about anything, you can also go and sign up for my newsletter. Come say hi on social media. I post movement tips almost daily on Instagram. It's Nutritious Movement. If you have a question, if there's something you want to know, email podcast at Nutritious Movement. If you enjoy listening to the Movie Redina podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps other listeners decide whether they should take a chance on this podcast. And if they do, it could help them get moving. On behalf of everyone at Move Your DNA and Nutritious Movement, thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. 